Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wartum Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. In this great episode, I sit down with the talented Marianne Acevedo, senior reporter at TechCrunch, covering all things fintech and Latin America tech. Marianne is a great person and a seasoned reporter who's been covering tech for over 25 years. She's seen and heard it all. And this was a very informative conversation where we cover a ton of ground, including Marianne's writing and creative process, some of the biggest trends she's seeing in the fintech space and how she manages the insane volume of industry news on a daily basis, the main differences between US-based entrepreneurs and Latin American founders. And if you've ever wondered what goes behind the screen at TechCrunch HQ, we cover that too. Plus tips and best practices to pitch a story to a reporter and some things you should absolutely avoid doing. And now please join me in a great conversation with Marianne Acevedo. Marianne, welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Thrilled to have you joining us all the way from Texas, I imagine. Uh, how are you today? I'm doing great, Miguel. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, it's it's our pleasure. So we've been talking for a while and, and I think there's very few guests that we have that are actually covering <laughs> fintech for a living. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think your, your point of view is going to be quite fascinating. So I'm, I'm excited to chat. But before we get to fintech, let's hear a bit about your background and when and, and how did you begin covering the industry? Mm-hmm. Well, I've been a journalist for a long time, over 25 years, and I've covered technology off and on over that period, even covering the dot-com boom and bust in the late 90s and then early 2000s. I uh, started covering startups and venture capital for Crunchbase News in 2017, and that's when I probably got my first taste of really covering fintech and Latin America as well. And at the time, you know, fintech was nowhere near where it is today in terms of maturity, and same with LATAM, really. So I kind of have watched both of those spaces explode over the past couple of years. Absolutely. And what are the, I guess, main differences that you see between covering tech widely mm-hmm. and fintech specifically? Um, I think with fintech, it's it's a really interesting space because these startups are, they're competing, yet they're partnering with, and in some cases wanting to be acquired by incumbents. So there's a lot of dynamics and it's just it's intriguing to watch that relationship in my opinion between incumbents and the fintechs because the incumbents, you know, they're a little bit scared but at the same time recognize the value of fintechs and and by partnering with them rather than trying to build out technology internally or acquiring them. So I think I think that's really fascinating in particular about the fintech space. Yeah, I I spent several years working at some of the incumbents. And I remember even in 2012 or, or 13, senior leadership was already talking about, you know, how Silicon Valley is going to 
come and eat their lunch, right? And, <laughs> and it turns out it's not just Silicon Valley, right? It's it's uh, New York. It's not at all. Yeah, it's Austin. It's Miami, and, mm -hmm. and just all over the world, right? Yeah, and, and how about from the reporting side, right? What has changed from where you sit? Because mm -hmm. you know, I, I always joke, and I know that you agree that. If you cover fintech, there's no such thing as a slow news day, right? Right. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it looks like it's only getting more intense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as we all know, the, the COVID pandemic really accelerated digital transformation, and, and financial services definitely saw saw the impacts of that in a huge way, with more people purchasing online, shopping online, conducting all sorts of transactions online. So. It's not a shock at all that we've seen this explosion in the space. In terms of like covering, I mean, I cannot even tell you the number of pitches I get from fintechs on a daily basis. And I mean, there's just too many. And, and a lot of them are very intriguing. But of course, there's only so much time in, in a day and only so many days in a week. So we can't get to them all. But I would say that just the sheer number of fundings is crazy. And of course, the valuations and the investors, and then also just the fact that a lot of companies that aren't necessarily true fintech plays have a fintech component these days. So hence that expression we've all heard of every company is a fintech. But it's kind of true because even companies in, in other industries are adding payments components, and then there's startups that are enabling that. So there's just so much happening. It's crazy busy. And I mean, I'm, I'm in a lucky spot to be at the center of it for sure and you you're talking to entrepreneurs from all over the world but in particular uh, founders from the u.s and latin america right yes yes i am got it got it and, and so when when you think of the ecosystem and and your conversations with with founders in both regions what are the biggest differences that you are seeing between U.S. And, and Latin American entrepreneurs? Well, first of all, the actual problems that are being addressed are similar, but Latin America, of course, is, I guess, I don't like to use the word behind because that implies something negative, but, but it's catching up in terms of, you know, digital transformation. So financial services in the region have been behind. There's a lot of underbanked, unbanked people and, you know, it's only in recent years that more and more people are getting used to mobile and just being online for everyday things. So it's obviously moving at a, you know, at a different pace than it is here in the US, but that also means there's a lot more opportunity in some ways. There's a lot a lot to be tackled, a lot to be changed, a lot that needs to be improved. So when it comes to the entrepreneurs, I really feel like there's a hunger that that you don't necessarily see as much here in the US. There's a, a hunger and an excitement like there, you know, nine figure, you know, funding rounds were not, you know, common um, and now they're becoming more common. Right. So there's an excitement about it that you don't see here. Like it's all yawn if someone raises 100 million or so in the U.S. But in Latin America, that's a really big deal, even though it's happening more and more often. It's still a bigger deal. So there's just a certain excitement, passion and, and hunger in the region, I think, that you won't necessarily find as much here in the U.S., especially in Silicon Valley, where like these deals happen on a on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah, definitely a, a lot less uh, 
I don't know if cynicism is the the right word, but mm-hmm. but uh, people can be a little more more jaded uh, to mm-hmm. those numbers here in the U.S. And when they when they're reaching out to you, right? Mm-hmm. Do you see a, a difference of approach from one versus the other? Um, I do think in Latin America there, and then I've kind of I've mentioned this on Twitter before. You know, connection is important to Latins, and so you know, that personal connection. And I think that probably holds true even when, when making deals and, and dealing with investors from other countries, which there are more and more of them there in the region for sure. But I think sometimes maybe investors here in the U.S. may underestimate how much a Latin American entrepreneur values that personal connection and wants to feel that they're being seen and heard as an individual and not just as a potential, you know, a portfolio company that might make them a lot of money, you know? So I think I think when I'm getting pitched by Latin entrepreneurs, you know, I, I guess um, that personal flair, I mean, founders do reach out to me in the U.S., but I think I see that more in Latin America, like less relying on PR and more just like, hey, I'm a founder, I'm starting this company, this is what I'm doing, why it's so cool. Or even, you know, some of the VCs in the region will reach out directly, but I'm getting more of the direct pitches as opposed to PR pitches. They're more personal. Yeah, I, it's funny you mention that because I, from the podcast side, we, we've seen something similar, right? I mean, I think uh, there's a whole mm-hmm. PR machinery here in, in the U.S. or even in Europe, right? Uh, whereas mm-hmm. I, I don't think I've had more than five emails from PR agencies representing founders in emerging markets. Right. Yet, you know, we've heard from them and we've hosted several of them. So that's fascinating to hear. Mm-hmm. And, and what is the most challenging part for you these days? I mean, you, you do get a lot of volume, mm-hmm. um, a lot of amazing stories, uh, but there's only so much time, right? Right, right. Yeah, I would say definitely the biggest challenges for me are, are there's two. One, yes, just managing the sheer volume of pitches. I always you know, joke with my colleagues is the writing is not the hard part at all. The interviewing is not hard. The hardest part is just managing that inbox and the volume of pitches. And when I first started at TechCrunch, I underestimated the number of them I would get. And it's it's insane. And in the beginning, I used to try to respond to like every person that emailed me and try to explain why I wouldn't be covering their round. And then I realized if I did that, I would never have time to write anything. So I'm trying different ways to address that. I'm thinking of different things. I've I've started doing an auto response, explaining things. So maybe that'll help where I don't feel as pressure to get back to everyone. Another thing in covering fintech is just trying to distinguish who's really doing something unique and who's not, because there's so many different companies doing very similar things. And it's it's kind of tough to tell. And this is maybe something VCs probably can relate to, right? Trying to determine like, really what's different about this company as opposed to the 10 others who are doing this thing. And so that's that's another thing where I kind of have to try to analyze a little bit. And, and again, I'm not an industry expert by any means. I'm not an investor, but but I do have to try to determine to the best of my ability, is something really unique or is it really just like 15 other companies doing the same thing? Yeah, and, and there's, uh, I guess there's precedent for great reporters becoming great VCs and with Michael Moritz at Sequoia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I see it. That's right. You know, you, you're, you're, you're talking to the founders, you're, you're covering an industry, you have to be on top of what's next. 
So it's, it's exciting. It is. And if you were to give some advice for entrepreneurs reaching out to you in, in the future, right? Well, what are some of the best practices to make your job easier? Well, I welcome pitches from founders, but I'd say the first thing is realistic expectations. You know, you can reach out, you can have the neatest, coolest company, but be realistic that it's it's going to be tough to get coverage unless you've just got a really compelling either offering, just something very unique or a, a neat origin story. Sometimes that can really attract attention, like just how you started a company or why, or if you've got, you know, seed money that's just really like from neat, some cool investors or or even even those to me I'm also also very intrigued by companies that are like making money right that are profitable at a very early stage because I feel like that's not as common at all anymore with most <laughs> most large companies like deeply unprofitable but authenticity is always appreciated reaching out is fine just be succinct you know a few paragraphs describing why you're reaching out, what your company does, why it's unique, what makes it different, and why our readers would care. And if you can just summarize that in a few paragraphs, that's really helpful. It doesn't need to be very long. We don't have a lot of time. So really being succinct is nice. Yeah. And and you got to have some some anecdotes from <laughs> maybe your time at TechCrunch or even before like from from people trying to either get coverage or, or some interviews that you've had? Yeah, I mean, as I'm half off this week, so I'm probably a little, probably going to be a little blank on a- anecdotes, but I, I would just say, you know, respect, like just not bombarding. Like I've had people who just won't stop emailing me, right? Like every day for like two weeks or something. Hey, did you get my email? Or, or what do you think of this? Are you going to cover us? Like that is a huge turnoff to a journalist, right? Like if someone hasn't gotten back to you after a couple of emails, you pretty much need to assume they're not interested. So, you know, it's it borderlines harassment. And um, I know we've all been there. Like we've had people who who do that to us. Um, so that's that's one thing I would really encourage entrepreneurs or PR people or investors, whoever, you know, not to do. I would say send a couple of emails if you don't hear back, you need to let it go. Maybe try again at a later time. I've had, you know, people where like they email me and, and I do respond and I say, okay, tell me a little bit more. And they kind of assume just because I've asked for more details, that means I'm going to write about them. And and then they like write back and say, okay, here's no details. So when, when are you going to cover my company? It's like, no, just because <laughs> I'm asking you questions doesn't mean I'm going to cover your company. I'm just asking you some questions. Or sometimes, you know, I... If I can't cover news or a company in and of itself, I'll file it away for a potential feature or trends piece one day. You know, it's not everything will warrant coverage in and of itself, but might fit in nicely with a bigger picture or trends piece. Yeah. And, and so tell us a bit about TechCrunch, about, you know, the company culture and, mm-hmm. you know, the collaboration that goes on behind the scenes. I think, you know, most of us, are are aware of the brand, but very few actually know how mm-hmm. how the magic happens. I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it's a great place to work. I love it. I'm surrounded by smart, very talented journalists, and who are really just dedicated to their craft and to the industries they cover. So you know, there's no competition between us at all. We you know 
very oftentimes we get pitches that we can't cover. We share with the other writers. You know, we're not, we try not to step on each other's toes, but, um, you know, everyone's pretty respectful. We're not a large bunch. So it's actually amazing, really, the, the volume, the quantity and quality of work that we manage to publish on a daily basis is truly impressive. Considering the size of our newsroom, it's great. I mean, you just, you've got people who are just really serious about what they do, but at the same time, know how to make light of it. So, you know, we have a Slack channel where we joke and we make fun of stuff, you know, here and there, but not of people, but just, you know, things. So, so there's room for some lightheartedness, but definitely a really smart, passionate, talented bunch of people. And I'm really happy to be on the team. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's not about volume, but uh, it's about having a strong brand and, mm-hmm. you know, definitely TechCrunch's position right in the in the middle. And a lot of the stories, I think, in, in the last, you know, year and a half, particularly during the pandemic, have been covering this, this move from a lot of people out of Silicon Valley, right, out of the Bay Area mm-hmm. to places like... Austin, like Miami, right? And, and many more. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I, I think you're biased <laughs> to one of those, uh, which is Austin. Mm-hmm. You're very public about it. Yeah, t- tell us about Austin. Is it the next Silicon Valley? Uh, I mean, no, I don't think so, honestly. I, and I don't think it aspires to be truly. I mean, I don't think anyone here has any delusion about Austin becoming the next Silicon Valley. And and um, I don't think there necessarily ever will be, right? Like another Silicon Valley. And maybe that's a good thing. Like, I don't know how many of them we need. Um, I think each of these markets has their own unique characteristics. I think Austin's growing a lot, for sure. We all know that. And the migration here has been happening for years. I've been covering it for years. It's not new. It's just accelerated lately. And there's a lot of a lot of bigger companies establishing their presence here. There's a lot of startups here, but I do think, I mean, let's be real. It's not, it's not flooded with unicorns by any means. I think we only have a few companies that have reached unicorn status and and really like have grown on that global scale. So I do think as cool as Austin is, it's still got a ways to go um, in terms of its startup scene, but culturally it's, it's actually kind of similar to the Bay area. It's a pretty city, you know, it's lovely. Housing prices reflect the continued migration, and but comparatively speaking, it is still cheaper to live here and cheaper to run a business here and cheaper to buy land here. So probably at least for a little while longer, we'll continue to see migration. Yeah, we, we've had a few guests uh, from Austin or uh, talking to us from Austin. I think most notably Dan Henry from Green Dot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's, uh, he's a big champion for, uh, of Austin. Um so, Marianne, you know that for all of our guests, you know, we like to also talk a bit about their hobbies, mm-hmm. right? And, and maybe you can tell us outside of TechCrunch and, <laughs> you know, all things FinTech, uh, what, what are some of those favorite hobbies of yours? Yeah, well, um, honestly, <laughs> I'm so busy with work and my children and uh, life. Uh, I don't have as many of them as I would like, but... I love to bike ride. I love to walk. I like movies. I'm boring. I'm really boring, you know, and then really most of my spare time is just, is just with my kids. I have a 14 year old and an eight year old. And so try to involve them in those hobbies as much as, as possible. I love to read also every chance I can get. I'm watching Ozark on Netflix right now, which is really fun. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. 
<laughs> no, this is amazing, Marianne. I mean, listen, uh, thank you for all your contributions to the space, uh, both with TechCrunch and, you know, with previous publications. Always a pleasure reading, you know, everything you contribute and super honored that you joined us on, on the podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm honored, honored to have uh, been asked to be on the podcast. Thank you so much for all your great work. No, of course. And, you know, there's an open invitation to, to come back and also to stop by Wharton in person post, post-COVID. That would be nice. <laughs> thank you so much, Miguel. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 